So we actually tell stories, right, not only as a way of making meaning in the world, but to actually enable us to function. I wonder if empathy is actually the holy grail that the social justice sector seems to think it is. Often you will something into action if you've imagined it. Then you can work towards that reality, even if it's 10 years away. Welcome to Wonderland, where we explore the connections between pop culture, human nature, and social change. I'm Bridget Antoinette Evans. And I'm Tracy Van Slyke. In our last episode, Washington Post pop culture critic Alyssa Rosenberg gave us her frank assessment of the entertainment industry. High-profile examples of things that are great and wonderful artistically and politically kind of conceal the fact that not very much has changed at all. Alyssa was referring to what we think of as positive developments in Hollywood. Examples like Issa Rae's show, Insecure, or Jordan Peele's Get Out. But she says that this doesn't necessarily indicate that Hollywood is permanently changing. And we need Hollywood to change so that it tells better stories. Stories that, over time, profoundly change the thoughts, beliefs, and behaviors of mass audiences. That's how we can create a better, more humane future. And that is culture change. So in this season, we're going to get into how to make a television show and the ins and outs of the entertainment industry. But first, we have to go back to the beginning, to the DNA of storytelling, this ancient tradition. When we think about storytelling in the context of social justice, we know that organizers have been using stories for generations as a way to appeal emotionally to audiences and to create empathy for others. So today, we are going to look at what happens to us physically when we tell or hear a story. And our guests will also challenge the idea that empathy is a critical part of an effective culture change strategy. My name is Saket Sony, and I'm an organizer of low-wage workers and migrant workers across the United States. My name is Heidi Boisvert, and I'm a new media artist, creative technologist, experienced designer, researcher, and writer. So in this pair... We have an organizer who's also a writer and an artist who's also a scientist. Saket Sony is executive director of the National Guest Worker Alliance and the New Orleans Worker Center for Racial Justice. He organizes migrant workers on farms, construction sites, and in factories, some of whom have been trafficked from around the world. He talks a lot about how storytelling is one of the most powerful tools he has as an organizer. And it's not a coincidence that he's also studied as a playwright. Heidi Boisvert directs the Future Perfect Lab, a culture change agency. She's also a fellow at the MIT Open Documentary Lab. She works with nonprofits to help them find imaginative and playful uses of media and technology. Heidi tells us why any conversation about culture change needs to incorporate a basic understanding of neuroscience. So get ready to tap into whatever you remember from high school biology. We're about to talk a whole lot about the limbic system. That is the part of the brain that makes sense of the world, makes memories, interprets emotions, and yes, tells stories. Our limbic system only forms between the age of three and seven. 
And so, you know, our attitudes around race, around gender, a whole host of things, and the way in which we make meaning in the world actually is shaped within this, this limbic system at this very kind of early stage of development. And so I think if we could better understand how the limbic system works, which actually controls our nervous system, our immune system, in our endocrinologic system, our basic well-being, then we can actually shape better narratives that can transform people's resistance to certain social issues. So I actually think, you know, understanding the body is a way of actually triggering potentially large-scale systemic change. In other words, in order to change the stories and how we react to them, we have to understand the way our bodies and our brains interpret stories in the first place. Heidi is the best person to show us that. And Socket is the perfect person to apply Heidi's teachings to social movements. But yes, first, he's got questions. So Heidi, tell me a little bit about how that would work. So in your work, you think a lot about empathy. In my work, I've spent a long time turning people who are in very traumatic landscapes into protagonists of their own reality and story. And many of our members would say that they're experiencing the end of empathy, that, you know, they have spent a long time empathizing with their wardens and their oppressors. They've spent a long time coming to protests and believing that even the ICE agents who are there to deport them have histories and families. Most of our members, I think, want to be on a journey of reconciliation instead of a permanent revolution. And yet, people are less optimistic than they've ever been because the evidence is not bearing out that the part of America that is not accepting of them is changing. It just seems like people are more stretched across a greater polarity than they have been in the last few decades. Yeah. I am fascinated by empathy, but I actually am quite critical of it because it's being overused. You know, empathy is far more complex than just the term and the way in which it's been utilized. You know, it actually is comprised of three different components, which is the affective, the cognitive, and the motivational. And so understanding those various things is helpful to realizing that it's not just simply about sort of stepping into somebody's shoes, which is a common phrase. It's complicated because, you know, as an organizer, I have conversations all the time with people whose experiences I haven't had. And I get invited into their experiences through the window of a conversation. And although you're not in someone else's shoes, you're as close as you could be while being apart. It's an exquisite experience to be connected in a deep way with someone who's from a different world and a different background the thing is that after you have that experience, you have a responsibility to that person that must be carried out in the world in order for it to be ethical. That responsibility doesn't mean necessarily a petition signature or a march, but at least it has to mean a relationship, a treasuring of it, some promise about a future we'll both build together. And so on one hand, people do yearn for others to be empathetic to them and understand them. And on the other hand, I share with you 
a real aversion to empathy in the way that it's talked about today in most popular circles because the question is who has the luxury to sit and be empathetic and who is the empathetic audience for whom everything is then designed yeah it's interesting the deep listening you are talking about um is much more about social emotional attunement than empathy because i think empathy and even sympathy further creates a space or a distance in between but when we're talking about social emotional attunement right there's a, a physiological resonance because you are present in addition to the social responsibility you know the responsibility to the other that you mentioned and so i think what ends up happening is we conflate a lot of these terms and so it's that fully embodied presence not a virtual false presence but the actual witnessing right and being seen like the velveteen rabbit that actually enables you to build that sense of trust and intimacy so it's my intuition and it's very untested but my sense is that there is actually a hunger for stories that narrate systems now that narrate more than just individual lives and journeys but how systems need to change and empathy isn't enough for that even if it were a good thing we really need to understand how larger social forces histories industries money all come together and conspire to lock a society into a place i came to organizing with a sensibility around the power of story and knew that story was more complicated than the way that many organizers are taught to use it necessarily so most innovation in storytelling has stopped at triggering the emotions that if you capture them at the right moment will make someone do one thing vote yes on a policy no on another the real use of storytelling is much more imaginative um and so we've tried in our work to use story to bring to life and harvest the expertise of our members people whose lives are at stake this is important what saka is fundamentally talking about here is changing the frame of the story and here's how it starts a worker who was brought from india put into a labor camp forced to work not allowed to have meetings not allowed to go home does not understand that problem as purely a problem of a broken contract it's a much deeper problem the available policies and laws and discourse that worker has available might be about broken contracts but storytelling allows us to and we've used it to excavate into people's real experiences and then make those experiences the shaper of the dominant frame a lot of times winning within the current frame isn't enough uh, unless you move the conversation and you move the frame through your movement um, you're not really winning yeah i'm currently working on a dance piece actually on trauma so i'm working with dancers and non-dancers who have experienced different types of trauma the one thing that i'm really curious about is how can we actually unpack something like systematic oppression right like racism where does that live in your body so if we can externalize these experiences that oftentimes don't necessarily have language right or words is there a way to create collective healing yeah that's really interesting heidi it made me think of this incredible scene in mississippi about 7 years ago 
we had encountered a group of workers from India who had been welders and pipe fitters in their homeland and then were recruited out to the post-Katrina Gulf Coast by a cartel of traffickers. They were housed in labor camps. We ferried them out of these labor camps a day before they were supposed to go on strike. The next morning, minutes before they were supposed to go on strike, we learned that the EEOC had just opened an investigation on their claims of human trafficking. And so our attorney announced to a crowd of about 500 workers that a government agency called the EEOC has opened an investigation into your claims of human trafficking. And I've never seen anything like this in my life, but these workers spontaneously burst into song. They started singing and clapping in unison an extraordinary song. And what I realized was that this was a group of workers who had migrated from India into dozens of countries. And this was the first time that they had been recognized by a nation state. They were finally in a place where they felt they had been seen, perhaps not accepted yet. They knew there was a long fight ahead of them. But somehow the announcement had sparked them into singing their ancestral boat song. Oh, that's really fascinating, Sakit. But I think the part that drove me most is not only about the story that comes out through the process of organizing, but actually the embodiment that you articulated with regards to the song. I think oftentimes what we forget with movement building is like we stay very much on the cognitive level. And what's interesting right there is that you were talking about laborers that use their bodies and their bodies actually bear meaning in their lives because they are their livelihood. And so how can we actually tap into or bring movement back into movement building? Most global labor migrants are people who work their bodies to the bone, often because of the narrowness of policy in the receiving country, they become criminalized. Many wind up in jail, in deportation proceedings. In that context, your body becomes something you put to work. It becomes something you're protecting from law enforcement. So I'm wondering what technologies can be placed in the hands of migrants in social movements to put the movement back into movement building? How would you help us think about how the migrants I was representing in that story could augment their movements with technology in a way that brought them closer to being inside their selves and their spirit? Um, what I'm trying to do actually is to create almost like a methodology that could then be scaled and shared in a sense like the vagina monologues. And what it would, in terms of operationalizing it, what I'm trying to The do methodology is, that Heidi uses is deep, complex, and quite interesting. And then I map that gesture to a machine learning algorithm that then converts those gestures into live drawings or sounds. If you want to learn more about it, check out her research and her show, The Walking Wounded, linked on our website.
I'm trying to get at something that's precog, kind of in the limbic system. So it's not just really sort of a piece to be performed, but it's actually a process that could enable communities to come together and understand what that shared narrative is. I think oftentimes, you know, as uh, individuals, us, right, all of us who work in on different social issues, we work on them because we're also walking wounded in some way. And oftentimes we don't articulate that. It just gets manifested through the work. That's hugely important. So many of the reasons that many of us get into movement work is because of our personal experiences, injustices that directly impact us or those we love. And we need to tell the stories of that injustice. That's why we do this work. But if we can create processes where communities come together to transform this trauma, then we can be more effective at the work that we do. And I think the narratives also can connect or resonate even with larger audiences. You know, Heidi, you're making me think of an episode later in the story I was telling. Years after those workers burst into song, they were able to win recognition under the Trafficking Victims Protection Act. And one of the workers was flying to Atlanta to be reunited with his family. He had gotten married and left India months before his son was born with the hopes that he would be able to bring his son and wife over. Since then, three years had passed and he had only ever met his son through webcam. And he told me he was very scared that his son wouldn't recognize him. And I waited all day and finally got the call. And I have never received such an elated phone call from one of my members and he said in Hindi, he's in my hands now. The little boy had sprung from his mom's hands into his dad's hands. But he's in my hands now was also about now I can hold him, I can possess him. And it's interesting to think about that moment as a turning point in his life. In the life of our advocacy and our movement and our campaign, the editorials in the New York Times that endorsed us the conferring of status on the workers were the big turning points. But in the lives of the people at stake, it was really much more visceral. And the story ended with this father holding his son. And so as you're talking about pre-narrative performance, I just think about all of the things that happen to people before words get attached and narrow the significance of a journey and it would be a beautiful thing for social movements to capture more of that. One of the things being bandied about a lot these days is, you know, I'll just back up and say what I really appreciate is how you guys are really talking about the body first and how story and personhood is embodied physically and how that translates to narrative. And there's a lot of technology these days that are trying to do that. VR, augmented reality, for a lot of people on the social change side, they're like, Finally, we've got ways to get people to like understand what it feels like to go through this situation, right? I'd love if you've been trying to think about like how does this new technology and storytelling might open up doors for your organizing and what are you thinking about the role it could or should not play? Well, I think it's quite clear that virtual reality and augmented reality and other technologies are tomorrow's television. That there'll be a day when they're as normal, as widespread, as much a part of our daily lives as the things we have today, which we take for granted. 
I think the question for us is, can we enter the field now to shape its goals and shape its uses while it's still being formed? And a lot of the question to me is, these technologies come up to solve for certain problems, but if people who are in our communities aren't at the table defining the problems, then these technologies solve for the wrong problems. And so, um, you know, those of us who have never been terribly optimistic that sensitivity training by itself will decrease police violence, don't think that the VR version of sensitivity training will decrease police violence. And so to me, the important conversations we should be having are firstly, how do we get into the rooms where the goals of these technologies are being defined so that we in our communities are not the subjects of the technology, but the drivers, the definers, you know, sitting in a privileged place, wearing expensive VR tools and consuming the experiences of a refugee in the Sudan is not social change. And I'm not even sure that it's good media. And so I think my question back to all of you is how do we create the creative partnerships now, conversations that seed um, the way in which oppressed communities are shaping the goals of this technology rather than having to contend with the consequences 10 years from now. Yeah. Yeah, I'm, I agree with everything you've laid out so far. And I think what we see is the way in which it's been utilized so far, but at a distance, right, at Davos or something with a bunch of headsets and suits, is both poverty porn, but it also enables a certain kind of distance in the same way that drones create a sense of distance because we fear the actual messiness of subjectivity. We fear a sense of being touched by these issues. So these technologies to some extent are creating a disconnection from the issue that allows safe viewing. And for the most part, those who have been developing and designing these technologies are a bunch of white men. And there's a lot of implicit biases that are integrated into the design of the technologies. I mean, the question that you asked is a critical one. It's not only, you know, how can we invite in communities that are being represented by these technologies, but how can we actually diversify the tech industry in a way that we start creating a different trajectory for the types of technologies that we use? Socket, what kinds of developments in technology do you think would actually help your work? And with that, what technology would be helpful to movements in general? Well, in rural Arkansas, there are hundreds of poultry plants that dot the state. And small numbers of migrant workers, mostly women, work in these plants. They work long hours and come home to trailers, they live in extraordinary racial isolation. Everyone around them is white. And they're also facing linguistic barriers and can't really communicate with anyone who lives around them. And often you will something into action if you've imagined it. 
if you imagine being with thousands and thousands of people like you, then you can work towards that reality, even if it's 10 years away. It's like the Martin Espada poem, Imagine the Angels of Bread, where he says, the abolition of slave manacles began with a vision of hands without manacles. So technology's potential of having people imagine a different reality in a way that they experience it in their body and feel how different it would feel, particularly for people who live in deep racial isolation and haven't experienced the confidence you get when you're with people like you. And so I could imagine a very beautiful intervention of technology. I can imagine going to a trailer of 15 poultry workers and having them wear these VR headsets and imagine what it would be like to sit with 5,000 other workers across the South and imagine that one day we will be in a room like this and create our standards for the industry. It's one thing if I tell them, and I can describe a very pretty scene, but it's a very different feeling when you're actually there. And then you take off that headset and I say, wouldn't it be great if we could make this happen? I think people would sign up. Heidi and Socket, blowing our minds. We expected that, though, right? <laughs> yeah, that's why we kind of put them together. We had a feeling they were going to, like, have fun with each other. Yeah. And go deep in ways that were unexpected. I mean, putting the design of VR experience in the hands of other people, people in from marginalized communities, means that the way that the technology will be used will be radically different. Like group of white guys in Silicon Valley aren't necessarily thinking, how do we use VR to help people see, feel powerful? That wouldn't occur to them because they are powerful. But for somebody who is in an isolated community in rural America, VR could help them to experience freedom, experience collective power. Yeah, I mean, I think the difference is it's not just them experiencing VR, but being part of design of what those technologies do and how they're connected. Because, you know, the whole thing is that everyone's like, well, if everyone experiences everything, the empathy level will dramatically increase. And thus, we have solved all our problems. When in fact, that creates empathy porn. But when you actually put the power creation and those tools in their hands they can see the use of it in a different way. Yeah. Once you also have a sense of ownership of something, that also means you have a sense of ownership of your own story and someone is not telling it for you and trying to uh, manipulate the emotions that they think other people should have. Mm -hmm. In another conversation, Socket said that most of the people, when we think about migrant workers, we think about their experiences in the U.S. and how difficult they can be, but that most of these people are a part of families that live thousands of miles away. And so in thinking about, like, what do different kinds of people need technology like VR to do for them, one of the things is to help them to experience life 
back home? Like, what would it look like for somebody working in, like, rural Nebraska to be able to experience their child's fifth birthday party? But this is also, uh, beyond that sort of individual experience, there's a real connection back into the kind of bigger culture change strategy we're trying to make. And this whole arc of this season is that who's designing these stories, who's individually experiencing them, understanding all those patterns actually gives you a foundation to create the narrative system, a set of stories that sort of surround sound yeah, around a particular idea. It, it, it can be baseline and really inform that larger culture change strategy. And that's what we're going to talk about next. On the next episode of Wonderland, we will explore how to use story to create a strategy with Christina Jimenez, leader of United We Dream. I I don't feel that we have yet gotten to the point where in pop culture, our stories are being shared and told in ways that I think will generate a dramatic shift. And Ryan Sensor, an expert in narrative strategy. A narrative is a story people already know, but it's also a tool that we can use to reshape how people think, feel, and respond to the world around them. Tune in next time on Wonderland. Wonderland is made possible with support from the Nathan Cummings Foundation, Unbound Philanthropy, and the Pop Culture Collaborative. Nancy Vitali produced the series. Destry Sibley is our editorial producer. Duff Harris is our sound engineer. Rigoberto Lara is our research assistant. This episode was recorded at the Awareness Group Studios in New York City. Special thanks to Kevin Plessner and Javiera Alarcón. Visit our website, thisiswonderland.us, for resources to develop your own culture change strategy. There are photos and videos of our conversation with Heidi and Socket and links to their work, including Heidi's dance piece, Wounded Warrior. 